0: This is an interview with Captain Eric Brown on the 10th of July, 79. Hopefully we'll we'll see. Yes, really from from the beginning, and um, asking people like yourselves, who were really the first uh, people to experience uh, compressibility conditions and transonic problems, uh, really how you came across them, uh, how you dealt with them. I mean, I've read the general terms in your book, but uh, can you recall the first experience you had of, of compressibility? Yes,
1: I think when I joined the aerodynamics flight at Fonda, really the main emphasis, of course, was on work with the Spitfire,
0: hmm.
1: which, in the light of sort of later events, it was quite startling that they really seemed to have chosen the right machine to do the first experiments on, um, because the Spitfire achieved some remarkable, remarkably high mech numbers in dives. Um, not always without drastic results, I may say. They uh, Twice in fairly heavy dives, uh, propellers were lost, and in one case, when it broke off, it took the first two cylinders away from the engine block with it so the cg went right out the back of the tail and that was flown by the then CEO of error flight called um, martindale and it really was a pretty hairy incident um when the this sort of break-off occurred the aircraft of course came out of a dive excessively under g and Martindale, I think, lost consciousness during this stage and found <laughs> himself up about 40 odd thousand feet with very little airplane left. And in fact, the, the wings were slightly swept on it. Um, the roots were, as I remember, it, had a, a gaping uh, hole, probably of the order of three inches at each root. So the wings had, in fact, been swept in the sense that the spar had been bent back in both cases. It's a, how it survived. it's a tribute to the strength of the Spitfire, really. But you know, he landed that damn thing on there aer- on the aerodrome wheels down, it really was quite a not lost his or anything. And uh, he got a, an immediate Air Force Cross for it, which he fully deserved. Mm. And he then had a repeat of this some time later. Now, he got the Spitfire up to a roundabout. to 9.6, which really is quite incredible when you consider, in general, people were dabbling about at that time with Mach numbers in the region of, well, anywhere from about 0.75 up to 0.8. It wasn't until the meteor arrived on the scene that we began to push up a bit higher into the eight middle eight to eight uh, to nine region, by right. eight four I think was the limit on the meteor. But here we were with a Spitfire having achieved this remarkable Mach number. Of course, let's be clear in a screaming dive from a multitude. But it was a good machine to train on in this sense. Once we had achieved this, every pilot was put through his paces on this machine in air of flight. Before he was put on to any other type of work, because the Spitfire <laughs> exhibited the compressibility characteristics that you would expect the classic ones like change of trim, um, fairly heavy buffeting, and of course, very, very heavy loads on the control column. Um, Martindale was a very, very big fellow, you must have been all of six feet two, and probably around about 40 stone. And he could pull something like 60 pounds on that stick, which is quite a feat for a one-handed pull, really. Is he still alive? No. Oh. No, he died of cancer um, quite a number of years ago. So he was really the first one, I would say, to. Get up into that 0.9 region uh, with any degree of um, control at all, and subsequently, everybody, of course, is battling for the magic Mac 1. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a long hiatus in terms of time. Of course, the war was on, and um, the immediate post-war period. It was still a, a fairly big heat as well. We all boggled around, as I said, in the 0.8, 0.9 region, and not much advance was being made on this. And the characteristics weren't really fully understood of what how the airflow separated under the compressibility conditions. And one of the big breakthroughs was made at Farnborough on a, a vampire. where We had a boffin who really was working with what might be called a shadowgraph apparatus, uh, whereby if the flight was done in the few hours of dusk, twilight to dusk, you had a light condition. You had to be careful the direction you were pointing in, but you had the ideal light condition by he had a filtered camera and it produced a shadow graph picture of the actual air flow over the wings. Now many, many people were very skeptical of this um, possibility, and he, it was decided anyway, there was, wasn't too much of it, it was decided to try. Now I did the first flight on this, and it had to be done very low down, this was the other thing. Um, so this is what made it slightly, I suppose, hazardous. However, the first flight was seemed to be successful, and we all toddled off in the evening, waiting for him to develop his pictures. The next day, the aeronautical world exploded when these pictures were revealed, because they were fantastically good, quite incredibly good. And uh, the system really showed what discrepancies there were between full-scale flight testing and model flight testing in tunnels. And this really was a breakthrough. Of course, the other astonishing thing about the transonic era was that Britain and America didn't seem to lock on to the value of the swept wing. Now, we had a group of scientists visit Germany before the war, and they were fully aware of the German research on swept twins. But, whether they were sceptical about it, or whether they just neglected to do it, or whether they thought their own method was better, I know not. But the hard fact remains, we virtually neglected sweat sweepback the Germans went ahead with it, not only in research but in application, as you well know, to operational aircraft. And this resulted in them having at the end of the war an aircraft, namely the Messerschmitt 262, that was virtually untouchable. There was nothing in the same league anywhere around operation. And in many ways, I think we ought to be thankful that the Germans produced this very late in the war and then when they did Hitler made a terribly bad decision where he decided that he needed fighter-bombers rather than fighters at this stage so he relegated the Messerschmitt 262 basically to being a fighter-bomber so his potential as a fighter wasn't exploited till virtually the war was won If it had come as it could have come easily, um, because the research was very well uh, advanced in Germany. If it had come a year earlier, it could well, in my opinion, have turned the outcome of the war, the war in the air. Maybe not in the long run, the eventual war, because you can always overwhelm another country with sheer weight of numbers, of course. But the war in the air would have taken, I think, a very, very different turn indeed. And uh, we'd have been faced with very heavy losses and maybe a considerable prolongation of the outcome of the war. But, up to a point, luck was on our side. Now the Germans, in spite of making these wonderful aerodynamic advances, just didn't have the time to do too much flight testing in the transonic region. They just pushed on as hard as they could, threw the thing into production and into combat, uh, literally within months of it having been tested in some cases. For example, the Arado 234, which was a startlingly good um, fighter-bomber, was put into production and was very, very successful, extremely fast for its time. and. When we interrogated the chief test pilot of the Arado company after the war, he had done virtually no transonic testing on this beast. It was quite unbelievable. Um, what little had been done, we advanced on that very quickly in Farmer within a matter of months. We had done more than they had. Um, so that aircraft had no sweepback, did it? Sorry? Did, did it have no sweepback, the Arado? For all practical purposes, no. It was virtually straight wing aircraft, yes. Mm-hmm. And, um... In spite of that, IMAC number. And, um... Another example, of course, is the Heinkel 162, the little Volksheger. Uh, this, um... was thrown into combat very fast airplane, almost as fast as the Messerschmitt 262, but thrown into combat because of the complete panic situation in Germany, virtually without any advanced flight testing at all. So we were left with a very interesting phase at the end of the war where we knew the potential of the German aircraft Mm. was far higher than ours, but we had no data, real data, on That testing for the simple reason it hadn't been done. So we were launched into our own testing program on this and this really was a very illuminating (laughs) and quite exciting time. And we had also at the same time of course captured a number of German scientists and these were brought to farm for the, the main ones amongst them who had been involved in this type of work they were brought to Farnborough and it was then planned to build a transonic research aeroplane based on German experience using their data their wind tunnel data etc on Sweetback. and uh, this was a very very exciting looking project indeed it was going to uh, have the pilot lying prone position in the actual engine intake. It was going to have no landing gear in the conventional sense. It was going to have a skid like the Messerschmitt 163, the little rocket fighter. Now, of course, that was another incredible airplane which really deserves its niche in um, any transonic story at all because. Here was an aircraft that was unique in the sense that it was rocket-powered, it had sweep-back, it was probably the, really the first swept-back aeroplanes to appear on the scene, and it had some staggering aspects of performance. At a time when we were talking about rates of climb being really good when they reached 4,000 feet a minute, this thing was going up to 40-odd thousand feet in 4 minutes, 10,000, 11,000 feet a minute rate of climb. Of course, it was a highly dangerous machine to fly, um, mainly because of the volatility of the fuel. And it killed far more Germans than it ever killed um, allies, I think. But nevertheless, the concept was basically sound if the engine had been developed a little further. It had good transonic uh, performance, very reasonable indeed, and we tested it at Farmer and found it very, very good. But it had the one thing which in transonic flight everybody feared, um, and that was a trim change which was nose down and which was so drastic that control was almost inevitably lost. And you had what was called in general parlance, a graveyards dive ensuing. Um, provided you had the the height and the courage to just hold on, of course, as you got into the denser air with the loss of altitude, the situation sorted itself out, but it wasn't everybody's cup of tea to sit this way. Mind you, you didn't have too much option in the assessment 163 because it had a limiting bail-out speed of 250 miles an hour as I recollect which is ludicrous, there was no no ejection seat. This was another feature of the transonic era, I think, that a lot of very hazardous testing was being done and most of it without the ejection seat because it preceded the ejection seat era. Um, It is true that the ME-262 um, eventually had an ejection seat, and um, but not in the original case, it not every, by no means had every um, 262 an ejection seat, in fact, I think there were very, very few of them did. Um 163 didn't have it at all, the Arada 234 didn't have it. Um, The Heinkel 162 did. I think it was really the first one that had the full production line, had ejection seats right from the word go. So you see, the whole thing was very, very much delayed. And On this side of the water and the British and American side, there were no ejection seats at all in the transonic, you know. Um, The Meteor at that stage didn't have an ejection seat. Um, Vampire certainly didn't. And even our little research aircraft, the um, DH-108, was without. So you had a situation where we were doing what might be called the unknown area of um, aerodynamics, one of the very, very much unknown areas at that time, and yet had the minimum escape facilities available. I think this is what really, the combination of the two is what really made it hazardous. And that's why I think a lot of lives were lost. A lot of lives could have been saved with ejection seats, but they just weren't there, hadn't been really invented or perfected. But there's no doubt about it, the toll in life was high um, in the experimental research world. And it spread up to a point into the operational world too, because as I've remarked, many of these aircraft were thrown into the operational arena without really having been fully tested in the transonic region. It's particularly true of the German aircraft, of course. And uh, there are many, many cases of um, recorded cases of operational pilots in the heat of battle exceeding the speed whereby the, the trim change put them yeah. out of control. Yeah. So, you had both casualty lists to deal with.
0: Can I take you back a bit earlier um, to your sort of, if you like, your training days when you were doing ground school and so Mm -hmm. on, um, where you read a lot of aerodynamic theory and and so on. Yes.
1: Did you read any transonic theory? Had you heard about Mach in those days? When I went to Farnborough, which was in 1944, Mm -hmm. I had really had no official briefing whatsoever in the service about transatlantic Flight. It was, as far as I was concerned, a closed book in all pur- for all practical purposes when I arrived at Farnborough. And indeed to such an extent that I suppose I must have been one of the first people that was asked to impart this knowledge to the services. And I remember writing an article for Air Clues, which was then an RAF magazine, which was found in all the crew rooms. This is in the post-war era, of course, uh, 1946, 47. And this was the first article, to the best of my knowledge, that ever was in a service magazine or book on transonic flight. And we went through the characteristics of all the aircraft that were then in service, and this is the state of play. But of course, once the um, momentum grew, it soon spread, and, and particularly with the arrival, of course, of the jet jet aircraft, which was such a big step forward in a matter of um, pure speed performance and in altitude, in particular. And it was, it's very easy to reach high Mach numbers provided you have the engine power at very high altitude without having too many ill effects. It's when you get down into the more the denser air that the, the problems start. And of course we're talking about an era where combat was rarely fought, um, much above 25,000 feet. And in fact the Battle of Britain type of combat was rarely fought above 5,000 feet, which was the advent of the flying fortresses into Germany that began to push the the height, the altitude up, and also the reconnaissance um, flights by things like mosquitoes, they began to push, and this was a, a method of escaping the fighters of that era because they just didn't have the performance to match it. So the service on the operational side of this, the armed forces had minimal knowledge of transonic flight, I would say, till round about 1946-47. And then it began to filter through. Thereafter, of course, once the first information was imparted, the floodgates opened and there was a whole rash of stuff came through from all directions. The Americans... Um, if anything, initially, were behind us because their first jets did not have the performance of the British jets, and certainly not of the German jets. But then they launched into something which is akin to the Messerschmitt 163, of course, in the Bell X1, and uh, this was a a very, very risky project, I think. Uh, and in some ways, it had smacked of being a bit of a public relations exercise because by this time the question of being the first nation to break the sound barrier was becoming a matter of almost national prestige and uh, we certainly were pushing very hard in this country and this is why the de Havilland 108 research aircraft was um, designed, built. It looked at two things really, or no, three things really. It looked at sweepback, looked at tailless aircraft and it looked at, of course, possible supersonic flight. In the event, it seems likely that it did achieve a supersonic flight, um, just, but certainly in an uncontrolled flight condition and also there is no record to prove it. Um, Now I interrogated John Derry on behalf of the Royal Aircraft Establishment after this flight and I'd known John a very, very long time and there is no doubt about it, I I had not the slightest qualm about his integrity he was a first class uh, test pilot and he was very, very analytical in his description of what happened. It all made sense and in the light of our subsequent testing though we never went supersonic for the simple reason it wouldn't go supersonic in controlled flight. It is probable that he did in fact just exceed Mach 1 in a screaming dive. And this was very shortly I think after Chuck Yeager did the, um, exceeded back one in the, the Bell X-1. Mm. But the Americans arrived there first.
0: You describe your experiences on the one oh eight in your in your book where you've got this terrible thing, I believe. Yes. And you think that is in fact how Jeffrey de Havilland...
1: Yes, we're pretty, up. this was really um, the ob- one of the objects of having it, Farnborough, was to do the accident investigation into Jeffrey de Havilland's death. Mm. There were one or two well, there was certainly one strange feature of, of this accident, that when Geoffrey's body was recovered from the mudflats of the Thames, it appeared to the people who did the post-mortem that his neck had actually been broken in flight and not as a result of the impact of the Earth. The reason for this left everybody slightly astonished and in the light of the subsequent testing we did and the characteristics we found out this very violent uh, porpoising type of oscillation which could be induced particularly at low altitude where of course you had the denser air um, could have accounted for this quite easily because he was a very big man I would think Jeffrey was uh, well over six feet Um, We had our suspicions that this was what had happened. So when I flew it, as you see, I'm small stature, so um, that and the fact that I had my seat well down, lowered right to the bottom, made sure that if this did occur, and indeed it did, with great violence, much greater violence than we had anticipated, um, my head did not, in fact, strike the canopy. It was violently striking the padded cushion behind me, but at least it was padded. And um, I think in Geoffrey's case, he would almost certainly have stuck the canopy and with such violence that it would quite easily account for it.
0: And you didn't wear these hard helmets?
1: No, day, we did Jeff? not in those no. days, no. They were that was another thing, you see, we were talking about ejection seats. This is another feature. There were no no bone domes in those days either. Mm. Mm. They were the ordinary Straightforward. And another thing, of course, is pressurized cabins were very rare. We were up there at 40,000 feet trying to do these feats with no pressurized cabins. Mm. So the whole thing, um, if you had a bailout at that height, your chances of survival, even if your parachute did open the rarefied air, were fairly thin. So it's, I repeat, it was being done in an era of um, an environment which in itself was hazardous. No ejection seats, no bone domes, no pressurised cams.
0: On, on this problem of the 108, um, Jaeger was telling me in some detail his experiences on flying the Northrop X4, mm-hmm. which was very similar. The yes. only advantage that the X4 had was these huge dive brakes, which as Chuck said would pull you back out of trouble if you came into trouble, It'd slow you down at a shattering rate. Um, I notice also one of your unpopular aircraft in your book was that that, um, tailless glider thing, the G.A.
1: G.A.L., yes. Yes. General Aircraft, yes. This is the one that killed Cronfeld, the famous glider pilot. And further, I can think of the the Armstrong Whitworth flying wing that Joe
0: Lancaster had to bail out on. Yes, he had.
1: Yes, that was the first ejection, I think, in this country. Yes,
0: yes. 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 Now, why have um, tailless designs been pursued when surely most designers know that um, tail-less,
1: short fuselage, span aircraft can develop these longitudinal oscillations. And it's very true that it, they do give an undamped oscillation. Um, I think a lot more has been known about them. This is another thing you see that about the advance of technology. When one was computing, uh, when I say computing, I should say calculating in those days, things like flutter undamped oscillations, the mathematical work involved was colossal. It was sometimes months of work to calculate this type of thing. And often, sheer weight of time involved uh, left one short of the desired amount of information one should have had. Um, Nowadays, with the rapidity of the computer, you can get your results so much more quickly and all this tends to allow you to delve deeper into the research, purely mathematical aspects of research, which are very important in the wind tunnel testing stage, the model testing stage. I was a great believer as a test pilot and I only wish more of my contemporaries had done the same and going and talking to the wind tunnel people Many of them regarded them as rather long-haired boffins who hadn't, um, who played with their toys in these rowdy tunnels. But I'm sure, for one thing, they saved my life from the DH-108. I read their reports avidly, because I was always fascinated by the wind tunnels. And they had a lot to contribute, these people. But they always agreed their knowledge was imperfect partly because of the mathematical situation I've told you and partly because wind tunnel testing is never the same as full-scale testing of course but you cannot disregard what the model says and under these circumstances and I found often it gave me just that vital clue I needed now you see in the DH 108 it's got a really a rather ghastly history as you know there were three built and all three ended up in fatal crashes and um, I had some, certainly two very frightening um, experiences, in it, one in um, stalling when it got into an inverted spin, which is never a pleasant thing under any circumstances, but when you're in an aircraft of this type, it, uh, it and indeed did eventually prove fatal to one of the other pilots. But I had studied the wind tunnel report on this, and I, I would say this is what got me out of that situation, because the great problem under these circumstances is disorientation. You're suddenly upside down and everything's the wrong way around. The left becomes the right and so on and so forth. And when the human mind is thrown into a moment of crisis, some of us react very cool and become ice cool. Others go the reverse way, but I don't care who he is. You're in a situation of disorientation. You need a little bit of time to sort yourself out, but well, you don't have the time. Therefore, I believed in making my preparation beforehand and knowing, going through the motions of what I would do if this situation occurred. And I got it all from the wind tunnel testing, and I reacted exactly as I'd been um or or as had been indicated, I hadn't been instructed, but as had been indicated in the Wind Tunnel Report. And it worked. And this is the proof of the pudding. Now on the other side, on the oscillation side, um, we had not had that revealed in wind testing. We knew that there was lack of damping, there's no doubt about that. We knew that there was the risk of oscillation. What we didn't know was that the oscillation would be so violent or of such short period by short period, I mean it's just stepping quickly from f- down to up in a matter of a split second. Yeah. So it doesn't tell you everything, but at least you get an indication as to where to go.
0: How did the other aircraft meet its end? There was one One you said was in a spin.
1: One, yes. The, the, there was Jeffrey's own one, of course, which was, was, doing one, a, right? yes, it was doing a preliminary run before an attempt on the world speed record. It was working up, rehearsal really for the world speed record. Right? Uh, the second one went, uh, when it got into the inverted spin I've just recounted to you, and the pilot was caught out. The third one went in, we believe, on the very oscillation I've also been talking to you about. And uh, he may have been repeating the test. Both of these chaps succeeded me as flight commander at, at Farnborough, um, when I moved on and they, I had introduced them to testing on the 108 but they hadn't done too much of it. But they were both very competent fellows uh, and indeed there was nobody more competent than Geoffrey to have with But it goes to show you can, you must have A I think in all this type of thing, a little luck on your side but I believe you can also go a long way to improving your own measure of luck by pre-flight um, not so much briefing as preparation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to c- come later on, possibly, if we've got time, to, to uh, find out in a little more detail to uh, what uh, circumstances and so on you attribute your survived state, because uh, from what I've read in your book, you had any number of hairy moments that you survived and other people in similar, similar circumstances didn't. But... Um, I really want to get back. I'm still fascinated by the Spitfire, and by its wing design, and its performance. Now
1: Tony Martindale was the first Shepherd farmer to experience compressibility, was he? Um, Oh no, not the first to experience compressibility. That had had gone back, um, I would say, probably to the 1943 period. I would say he was the first to experience compressibility at the higher Mach numbers. Yes, mm-hmm. the higher Mach numbers. By higher I mean over 0.85. Mm-hmm.
0: And he was the first chap you meant to tell you about it or, or uh,
1: He was when I arrived at Farnborough he was the flight commander of Aeroflight and I was I joined Aeroflight as such. Mm-hmm. And of course there were only, I think at that time, six pilots there a flight, and we used to talk sit and talk in the crew room naturally about all these things, read each other's reports, and, um, Tony Martindale was always very careful to make sure that we all got a little bit of experience in everything. He, he wasn't a believer in keeping it to himself as the flight commander. He liked to spread it around because he believed we should all be contributing. He, uh, he was great believer in getting a second opinion, for example, on things which I also am a great believer in. Um, so from this point of view, he was ideal in this res- respect of giving us experience. Um, he certainly went further than anybody else for this simple reason I think I pointed out earlier, physique. He was physically capable of holding the control forces beyond that of which the average person could cope with. So that is why he went further than anybody else. There's no doubt about that.
0: Now, at at these high mark numbers, um, did you uh, experience the, uh, you had nose down trip, which was a characteristic?
1: Sometimes it's, it usually changed. It would begin, um, it could be progressively nose down, you're quite right, but often there was a double change. It would start being nose up and then Mm. you'd back to neutral and then nose down. Mm, mm. And that was um, quite a common characteristic in yeah. many of change of trim. Did, did you get
0: elevator
1: flutter? Buffet. Buffet. Yes, Yes. yes yeah. quite a lot. Mm. Quite heavy in some cases. Yeah. And it could be felt on the stick. The stick would be shaking quite violently in some cases. And
0: then what about directional stability?
1: Directional stability was sometimes affected too. You could get rudder shake, and the one thing you were always primed not to do was to touch the trim tabs on either the elevator or the rudder. Once they had been preset at a value which would probably take you into the mean of the area you were going to investigate, so that they were in case you got the double nose up, nose down, um, you were told never under any circumstances to touch the trim tabs because they would probably come off if they were moved and then of course control would be lost. You just had to ride it out and wait till the aircraft dived into the lower um, altitudes, the more dense air, and when the Mach number would automatically reduce provided, provided you could keep the dive angle constant. If it was still bunting over of course you were in real trouble.
0: And and what about lateral stability? Did the wings keep level?
1: Yes, no, not always. Um, Lateral stability wasn't usually too often affected, but um, lateral rocking or lurching was, in some aircraft, quite necessary. So you could, in fact, have the combination in the worst circumstance of all three. But normally you had two to cope with either directional, and, but of course it was mainly fore and aft in every case.
0: Now, what was the um, range of thickness cord ratios on a Spitfire's wing? Because the cord was a constantly varying number, really, on that banana-shaped thing. That's right, yes. I
1: mean, was it within this magic 10% that, that was supposed to be necessary? I think it was... you're testing my memory. I thought from remembering it was about 11%. Um, I think it may just have been over.
0: Some incredible design.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes, there's no doubt about it. It was an inspired design by Mitchell. Mm-hmm. I think you'd have to take a reading on that. I think it was somewhere between 9 and 11. But um, the, uh, the real thing about it, I think, was he seemed to have got the aspect ratio just right. And uh, he had um, no breakaway in the normal places where you expect it at the wingtips occurring and getting an initial breakaway and you get vortices streaming off the tips. All this he seemed to have by an inspired touch. I can't believe that with the state of the art at that time, he knew enough about it to deliberately design that way. I think he just had that that gift that genius has of seeing the right shape and drawing it that way. See another one who was very much the same school was Sydney Cam. Yeah. Um, I don't think Sir Sydney would ever have claimed to have had a, a great in-depth knowledge of aerodynamics, but he was an inspired designer in the sense that he could—he had a gut feeling, as they say nowadays, for what was right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Because with Mitchell, he was trying to get as much volume out of the wing for a set of thickness. That's correct. And um, I believe the Germans
1: built a similar shape wing, one of the Heinkels, wasn't it? The Heinkel 70? They had, um, they had the Heinkel 112, which one two. in some ways was like the Spitfire. Mm. That was also a very fast aeroplane, of course. Yeah. Um, the Germans ran, in some ways, ran very parallel to the British um, research in wing, shape, mm. wing profile.
0: Yeah.
1: Where they where they differed, of course, was in the, as I say, mainly in this matter of the sweepback. Mm. Mm. They had also um, some quite advanced ideas on um, the different aspect ratios that should be used, which um, were a little different from our own.
0: Going on, um you, you write at length about the vampire and um, I think Reddy Bemont was telling me that uh, ironically the, the wing section of both the meteor and the vampire were, was much thicker and much less suited to high speed flight than the Spitfire. Oh yes. that's. It uh, was very blunt. Buck very Um You flew the Hawker series, did you, the yes. 1040, 1052 and yes. so
1: on. Uh, what were your feelings about that series? Oh, they were, again... Um, Smooth and nice. They had the Spitfire touch about it. And this is what I said about Cam, and he's, he's had the same inspiration as Mitchell. They really were smooth and fine uh, aircraft to handle. But again, the the real problem in both the uh, case of the Spitfire and the Hawker series were they didn't have the power to push them far enough, fast enough. Um, one wonders what, what they would have done if they'd had the same power as was later put on the scimitar, for example. Um, here was an airplane with an immense amount of power on it, uh, and yet, somehow, the design it didn't go fast. Um, the, the Hawker situation, I felt the reverse had occurred. You had this beautiful design and a lack of power just to push it far enough. We did quite a lot of testing with the 1052, uh, and it's the 10. It was the 1040 and the 1052. It was the one I think was the swept back one. Yep. Yeah. The 1081 was the all swept. That was the all swept. Yeah. yeah. Did you find out? Um, no, I didn't know. Uh, 1052 was the last one I flew. Mm. But again, um, it ran out of uh, trim eventually start exhibiting any very ferocious characteristics and I, this is again one of the things I felt that it could have been pushed much further with a little um, adjustment and a little uh, to the shape probably of the um, tail, a flying tail for example, no moving tail on it and um, a little bit of extra power. They didn't have flying tails, though so they? Well, they were just coming in at that time, in. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, Wimpy Wade was killed on... on That's on right, many. he was That's indeed. Problem, wasn't yes, it? he and was. And, uh, and an accident, I've never really heard the, f- the explanation, the full explanation of what happened. I don't think anybody's terribly clear what happened. Was low level, it may have been. My suspicion is it was a compressibility problem. Well, ne- ne- Neville
0: Duke's theory was that, that he'd gone into an ever steepening dive and, and had ejected and um, uh, not cleared the aircraft properly, injured himself on ejection. Because, yes. I gather, the aircraft landed almost in one piece.
1: Really? This is what
0: Neville Duke told me.
1: So, in other words, um, in effect, it had done just what we've been talking yeah, about. Recovered. Once it got lowered down, it pulled itself out of the dive. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Because, uh, to get over this underpowering, and again, this is, this is Neville Duke's supposition, uh, Wade had been in the States doing some flying, and he'd flown one or two marginless uh, supersonic or transonic aircraft there and found that the only way to get up to a high Mach number while you're still high up is in fact to flip it onto its back and then pull a really tight G turn into the dive on full power. And that's, that's what he right, tried yes. to the ten eighty one. Yes. And found that he'd taken on more than he could handle, or thought he could handle. And got out perhaps a little bit too soon. Mm. And the thing in fact recovered once it started hitting a
1: reasonable cue again. Well um, this this I would think is um, a very, very, very valid explanation. Because there's no doubt about it, we were in, we were taught to, to use this method of a half roll yeah. and a pull through to to get maximum acceleration.
0: Did you fly the the Avro series of seven hundred and seven deltas support? No, I did not. You, you've had no delta time apart from the Comet, I suppose. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just going. Um, I've done a fair bit of homework from principally the, the more exotic yes. aircraft yes. like that one in your book. I mean, I, they're marvellous. They're like flight manuals. I feel i more, if I had the courage, I'd get in and take off. Um, this one fascinates me. Um, the fuels. You refer to T-Stoff and C-Stoff. Yes. What, in fact, are they? What chemicals were
1: they? Um, now, you'd have to refer, to, frankly, to my book to re- to remember what they were actually were. They were. Um, don't I should th- give them a chemical name. Don't milk. I? No. Ah, well, now I can I can look that up for you. Yeah. I have it written s- somewhere, and um, they were hypergolic
0: fuels, were they? I mean, they ignite. Oh them. yes,
1: one was a methanol sort of um, product, and the other was um, a hydrogen type of product, and when they were both highly volatile in their own rights, when mixed, they were absolutely explosive, of course. And we saw a demonstration of this. I think I, t- I tell it in one of my books, of, um, given by Dr. Walter himself in Kiel, where he actually dripped a drop of each off the end of a glass test tube and let them mix, and the result explosion was quite extraordinary when you consider there were only two drops involved. And this was the problem with this aircraft, that. Once they mixed in the rocket chamber, all was well, of course, but if there was any remaining in the fuel tanks at all, if you hadn't totally drained the fuel or jettisoned, it was a jettison system, um, they were so volatile, that although they weren't mixed at that stage, a bump was sufficient to set either off. No. And it, they were, really, you were sitting on a, a small atom bomb all the time in this thing quite frightening. uh, The German pilots themselves, um, the ones I interrogated, I think they had got to the stage while there was a great psychological fear beginning to course through these squadrons that they they really were sitting on a time bomb. it must have been obvious you couldn't be in a squadron like this and see the number of ground accidents they had, for example, which were enormous. It was I think it was calculated that they only lost 5% of, these, of their total losses in this type of aircraft due to enemy action. All the others were due to either fire, uh, take-off and landing accidents caused mainly by fire, um, or the rocket motor itself exploding. And um, compressibility effects. Mm. Can I
0: ask you a general questions? So, um, what, in with all the types you've flown, did you consider was the nicest aircraft, the one that gave you the most pleasure as a
1: pure, From a pure pleasure point of view, yes. Uh, I've often thought of this. I would say, without any question in my mind, the de Havilland Hornet. Uh, because it was a beautiful instinctively beautiful shape and I say instinctively when you approach an airplane, you get this feeling it's right or it's wrong and it just looked right it's a lot of airplane in the sense that one man sits in it but it has that rare quality which so often is missing in aircraft it was overpowered this was delightful to such an extent that um, I used to give aerobatic shows uh, in this aircraft, the, and do the whole show on one engine, and eventually do a loop with both feathered. It was that type of airplane, it was very, very streamlined, very, very fast, and if you dived it down, obviously at full power, when I say you do a loop with both feathered, well I must describe what I mean, you dive it at absolutely full power towards your point where you're going to start the pull up, and just before you pull up, you feather. So you as you just come out of the bottom you're in the feathering process and by the time you begin to pull up into the vertical you you are actually feathered on both and it, you have enough inertia there to carry you right through the loop with no problem at all and as soon as you've crossed over the top and on the way down you unfeather. and you carry a spare fuse and you handy in your pocket case <laughs> you blow the, the fuse and the feathering motor, otherwise you've got a problem. Mm. But it was that type of aeroplane. Delightful. I wouldn't say it had the um, perfect harmony of control, but it had very good harmony of control. I think this is what makes a pilot love an aeroplane, is a real beautiful harmony of control. You had um, no torque reaction problems with the, the engines but yeah. No, because they were handed, you see. Yeah. Yes, they each went in the opposite direction. This was another point, of course. You could. Um, there was no takeoff swing, no landing swing, anything like that. Magnificent view, which is only it was only equal later by jets, of course, which tend to have a very good view anyway. Um, but for um, a propeller airplane, quite unique. You were just sitting between the two engines there, and right on the very the very nose. I must say it was
0: a beautiful looking airplane. Oh,
1: absolutely superb! Yes. I think it's a shame
0: they haven't preserved any. I don't know of any. Even the, I don't know. I don't, quite
1: done. honestly, yes. Another very, what I always consider a very beautiful airplane, but it never went into production, was the Martin MB5, Martin Baker Five, beautiful fighter um, aircraft, but it just arrived too late at um, the end of the war.
0: What about the worst? Without, of yes, airplane? yes, again I haven't
1: much doubt in saying I think the the GAL fifty six, this tailless glider, um, which really I thought was a highly dangerous aircraft in the sense that it was difficult to get off the ground at all it exhibited um, quite violent trim change characteristics when one was trying to take it off it was the wing was so close to the ground as it drooped that it there was a marked ground effect in other words the as you accelerated the air was being cushioned between the runway and the wing soon as you pulled out of this cushion you got a violent change of trim and it tended to dive you straight back into the runway And in fact often i've had the stick on the back stop absolutely nothing further to go and just praying that it wouldn't hit the runway um, and once you got through that situation you that was just the beginning of your troubles um the type of testing we were doing we did a lot of stalling it had a very violent self-induced stall so that when you began to pull the nose up it reached an instance at where it then took charge of the situation itself and even if you pushed the stick onto the dashboard you couldn't counteract this it reared itself up to Quite an alarming de- um, angle. It doesn't sound much, but uh, I'm talking about angles of 14, 15 degrees, probably, which are fairly alarming in there at that um, at a stall, because the normal stalls round about the l- sort of 11 degree mark, mm-hmm. in this order. Um, and it then, when you felt you really did feel you were going r- right over onto your back, it would suddenly unstall. Very violently and drop into a vertical position, nose down. So there was a fair amount of being thrown about in the cockpit going on. And then, when you had uh, the landing situation, you had, of course, thank you very much, Joe. Uh, uh, you had the same in the landing uh, situation. Of course, you had the reverse of the takeoff. You had the ground effect coming in again, just when you were holding off, and um, thank you. and you felt that. <laughs> all set for an landing. you would suddenly get this violent change of trim occurring. Mm-hmm. And uh, it could be a, a terrible mess of the final result. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, now, the self-stalling characteristics were so violent that when we returned it um, to General Aircraft, we understood when we got instantly that they hadn't stalled it to that date. Mm-hmm. But we gave them a very, very full report on what was involved. Now they had, as a test pilot at that time, a very famous glider pilot called Kronfeldt, a man who had a great reputation in the gliding world and um, he went up, I think from Lasham and uh, intending to repeat some of these stalling characteristics, fully aware of our report etc, but got into some sort of trouble and um, and there was a fatal accident, I'm afraid. Mm. So in many ways, it was um, a repeat story of the DH 108 on a smaller scale. Was that the most
0: intractable problem you had to deal with in your testing? Or were the problems that you didn't really find get to the bottom of?
1: Um, I suppose the Tudor was one, wasn't it, you mentioned? The Tudor was a fascinating problem because this was a design that came from the drawing board of a man who had made what I consider one of the finest aeroplanes I've ever set my hands on in Lancaster. I really had a tremendous respect for Lancaster. Um, coming from the same stable you got there for a Tudor. And it came to us at Farnborough in dire trouble. And there was so much wrong with it. Um, It's difficult to know where to start. It had a lot of problems. And we took it through quite an extensive series of tests. It was obvious that some fairly extensive redesigning would be required in certain areas. And this was, of course, told to the the company. And the later tutors were, in fact, modified accordingly. And it became good enough to go into airline service. Now, it had a bit of a disastrous history in airline service. As you know, there was a big disaster with a load of Welsh rugby players, I think, and Welsh rugby um, fans. returning from Ireland, where it cl- crashed. Um, in, that was the mark 2, wasn't in it? Wales. Yes, that's right. And I think there were 90-odd people killed. And then there were these very two mysterious happenings on the Bermuda run, where the Star Tiger, and I think it was the Star Panther, were lost. Um, so the whole thing had a, a rather a mis... An Have air- you any ideas why those two
0: aircraft disappeared?
1: my own view is that there must have been something very sudden and violent happened or conversely something that crept up on people on their crew in particular and such as for example the escape of a noxious ga- gas or fumes or something of the sort, and they were not too aware of it, and uh, they lapsed into unconsciousness. But I tend to go for the, the violent theory. Um, based on our testing, I wouldn't say I could offer you really any explanation as to what occurred in that, circ- and under those circumstances.
0: What sort of violent thing would happen there? I mean, a wind drop off, or as crude as that? or
1: well. That's a very good question. Um, it would have had, I would have thought, to have been some sort of structural failure. C- it certainly wouldn't have been any um, normal control problem. Um, the aircraft was pl- was um, cleared for transport flying. It had no problems or even near dangerous problems in that sense. So it must have been some type of structural failure. It uh, may have been a fatigue failure, it may have been an ep- uh, Straight structural failure. Because
0: it wouldn't have been on the end of a climb like the comet. Had nothing characteristic about it.
1: There. The best of our knowledge, they were in level flight in both cases, and not, and not too high an altitude either. Mm. Mm. Uh, the last message that was had from them, they, I think they were on the descent, and or had levelled off after the descent at fairly reasonably low altitude. Uh, it remains one of the great mysteries, all like the Marie Celeste. Um, we just nobody knows, and nobody can really offer. There are many guesses, but nobody can really offer a good answer. But then, of course, an interesting thing we were talking in the Tudor is we did, we actually did some transonic testing in the Tudor. Um, that may seem ridiculous in the light of the size of this vehicle, but um, these aircraft that were going to fly at very high altitudes had the ability to get into the transonic region. Mm. And so it was considered necessary to have a look to see what the characteristics were going to be. Because, that the, um, as you're well aware, the, it was intended to put jet engines on the Tudor. And eventually they were, and it became the Ashton. So this was the reason the transonic testing was being done. And that was quite an exciting event, uh, because the stick forces involved in a big airplane like that, of course, in transonic, uh, changes of trim, compressibility changes of trim are very large, and uh, it's. We had to brief two pilots, myself and my co-pilot, to be. If I wanted help, we had a code of signals ready to um, to give the necessary pull, pushes, or whatever. Because, uh, Already one had a two handed job going on. You weren't able to move the throttles, so the second pilot usually had to deal with the throttles and then try and give you uh, aid on the second stick. And we I think we were recording some pulls well off the order of eighty pounds. It's a lot of pulling.
0: What about the, 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 the Halifax Troubles, so you, were on the, uh, you worked on we, them? I was
1: only, an, and when you say Halifax Troubles, the one I was involved in was the question of their problems associated with corkscrewing evasive maneuvers over Germany. There were a number of reports coming back from aircrew that they had seen Halifaxes going in in uh, steep spirals um, course of course, uh, on night operations, um, and it was decided that this was happening, the reports were becoming so frequent we thought we'd better have a look just to, to see what was involved. And that was not a compressibility problem. Mm-hmm. It was a straightforward problem of the corkscrew maneuver was such that the idea was to pull the aircraft up, and turn violently at the same time. And some of the crew were using cutting an engine to aid the turn. And it was decided that this was happening, the reports were becoming so frequent, we thought we'd better have a look to just see what was involved. And that was not a compressibility problem, it was a straightforward problem of the Corkscrew manoeuvre was such that the idea was to pull the aircraft up and turn violently at the same time, and some of the crew were using cutting an engine to aid the turn. And we found that… This was for evasive action. Yes, it was for evasive action when you were either in searchlights or a fighter was chasing you, either or. Now. The um, cutting of an engine had a fairly violent effect on the um, making the wing drop, losing lift on one side when you cut that engine. And I think many of the people didn't appreciate quite how violent this effect could be, and you could get yourself into a position where you would probably have got your attitude into such a situation that you toppled your artificial horizon or your blind-flying instruments, in other words. So you had no reference other than outside reference, basically. Since your outside reference in a pitch-black night and its searchlights is never very good, anyway. Um, This could well account for the disaster. And we... I had the good fortune to take up the, uh, the very famous um, chap who runs the home, so Captain Cheshire. Cheshire, yes. And uh, he at that time, of course, was at the peak of his powers and, um, as a bomber pilot. and uh, he was well renowned for his very, very press- on attitude. And he came up with me that night when we flew from Farnborough and just to make sure that I was doing what he believed were the practices that were being used in the squadrons. And um, it was quite clear then that uh, he himself was a very good pilot and he would cut the engine probably in such a way that he was controlling the situation all the way through. But if you got a young a pilot, not without his experience, and was maybe handling the thing a little harshly, and the situation under dire stress—of course, you were in enemy territory under attack—it um, was easy to see how the situation could rapidly develop from a controlled situation into a disastrously uncontrolled situation. There was, was very fine balance. And when you get as big an aeroplane as this and it does get out of control, you need an awful lot of height to get it back into control. This is the problem. It loses a tremendous amount of height. That's why they altered the shape of the fins, did they on the later that's, that's correct. It also no, but this is the other point. It was to aggravate this engine cutting, it also had what's called rudder over balance. In other words, when you're corkscrewing, you're not only using your elements and your elevator, you also can use violent rudder movements. And when you push hard on the rudder and you could get full rudder on in these circumstances and the aircraft was skidding, as you had almost two thirds travel on, it would suddenly move over the other third itself and lock. Now the pressure required foot load to get that back was so high that it would have needed two people to do it. Now the Halifax is as you know it was in our mm. situation we had we didn't have co-pilots in those days, there were flight engineers. Uh, and the footload was probably too much for one man. So once you got into this question of pulling an engine back, getting a roll on because you'd lost lift and you got rather overbalanced at the same time, you really had a fatal combination.
0: Going back, I mean, you know Germany and German flight developments and people very well. Who are the main German engineers, you think, who brought the state of the art to such a high level of development at the end of the war?
1: I mean, there was Lippisch in his deltas, and he designed yes. the Comet, didn't he? Um, Lippisch was a remarkable man, in many ways, but I wouldn't, he wasn't the the Archie which of um, Germany, Cooked Tank, I think, was the man that I would put on the par with R.T. Mitchell. He was the chief designer for Fokker Wolf. Now he was a remarkable man in many ways because not only was he the chief designer, he did all the initial flight on his own designs. Um, so he was a qualified test pilot, and and he was really very highly thought of, I mean, very, very fertile brain, and of course he produced some magnificent aircraft, um, the focke Wolf 190. I always think of the water in this sense, if there were three aircraft that came right on either side, I would put the focke Wolf 190 as one of the big ones, the Ju-88 uh, the 262, and the uh, ME-262 as the three German ones that I would choose. On the British side, the Spitfire, the Mosquito, and the Lancaster. Now, all these six aircraft were magnificent aircraft, all of them. Um, and Cook Tank was the producer of the 190. Now, the 262 was Willy Messerschmitt's, but Willy Messerschmitt I would put in the same category as Tank in the sense that. Um, 262 was a way ahead of its time. It had swept back, of course, much of that information came out of the um, German research establishments as opposed to out of the aircraft's own um, research department, so to speak. It came out of the national resource as opposed to the company resource. Where was that? At Peenemunde? Some at Peenemunde, a lot done at Brunswick, but mostly done at Göttingen. The 262 had a lot of design carry, of um, control and stability characteristics that were masked by its marvellous performance, but it wasn't really a beautiful aeroplane to fly in some ways. It had problems and um, it could be a very lethal machine, for example, if one had an engine failure on takeoff. Now, the Wolf 190 was a delightful airplane in every sense of the word. It barely had a fault. It had a, vi- a fairly vigorous stall, but apart from that, it was almost as, um, perfect as the, the Spitfire. So, quote Tank, I think, first and foremost. Uh, when you go on to the bomber side, I think the, um, the Junkers team, we didn't have much to do with them, of course, because most of them were trapped in the, um, the Russian zone after the war. Dr. Heinkel, I spoke to quite a lot. Um, strange, interesting man, because, as you know, he was a Jew. Hmm. He was, I didn't know actually. Yes, and he was preserved because, I <coughs> presume, of <laughs> his usefulness to the, um, the regime. But uh, he had a lot of administrative troubles, probably because of that aspect. Uh, but he, d- he did design some very fine aircraft, some research aircraft. The very first jet, of course, that ever flew was the um, Heinkels. Uh, he had a disastrous aircraft, of course, in the Heinkel 177. But that was designed not so much under the age, direct ages of Heinkel as under a consortium of designers who were working for his firm. And he was very scaring himself about this particular aircraft. Um, but the, I would say if Germany's real, real strengths lay in their research establishments, like Göttingen, as I say, and Brunswick, this is where the real power lay. Um, just as much of the power of this country of course lay in the R.E. Farnborough. Uh, If you were in any trouble or any stage of the design process you had to come to Farnborough, which was the fount of all knowledge really in this country for anything aeronautical. And um, when you look at the men who were at Farnborough in the war years, it's like a who's who of British aviation or almost of world aviation. Huge names, and uh, they carried on. And much of their expertise—the f- the part, uh, for example, that Farmer played in Concord, design of Concord—is immense. Um, and much of that came from the team who were there, in the war years. They'd all become senior by this time, but nevertheless, it carried on through. Were there many Jones from?
0: Oh German. yes, after the
1: war, a considerable number of Germans were taken on at Farnborough. Many of them, extremely distinguished, like Dr. Kuchemann, for example, uh, who's now gone back to Brunswick, I think. Yes.
0: He, didn't he design the Oguibel wing of
1: the Concorde? That's, right. That's right.
0: That's mm. right.
1: And um, we picked out quite a number, and they, many of them decided voluntarily to stay on. Of course, they were pressed into Judy and Farmer to begin with, but then came the period when they were free to go either way and many of them decided to stay Mm. on in this environment because they were true, they weren't interested in the uh, political situation at the time, they were true scientists. Like um, I think one of the most interesting men I've ever met in my life, Werner von Braun, who was a true scientist. Um, He would I wouldn't, I'm not hinting that he was disloyal to his country, on the contrary, on the contrary. But what I'm saying is he was so much involved in the advance of science that he would almost have worked for anybody that would have given them the facilities to progress his thinking and his ideas. He was that the pure, he was the pure scientist, motivated only by a desire to advance the progress and the knowledge of mankind, remarkable men, rather like Krupp in a similar kind of way. Yeah, yeah. yes. Had to build guns. Didn't manage to do before. Right. Yeah. Remarkable men, I think. What about Buzuman? Is he still around? Or? Who? Bozeman. Uh, he. Not to my knowledge. He may be. I haven't heard anything mm-hmm. of him.
0: Who are the people who are still around? Um, who I might go and talk to on this kind of theme. Uh, anyone getting into in Germany
1: yeah um yes I would try and I would go and talk to if I were you mm. um I think he's well worth yeah. what that word. and um they of course there's Hannah right but you'll, I doubt whether you'll ever get in contact with her she avoids um contact in many ways because, you know, Hannah was a fanatical Nazi and I think she wants to leave that image as far away as she can. Um, The BBC had her in this uh, series. Yes, I don't know how they they got hold of her. Somebody (laughs) must have brought a lot of pressure to bear, but Mm. it's very rare you can get Hannah to open her mouth. She's very elusive too. I think she's in Ghana at the moment but uh, she plays it very low-key. She was a remarkable woman, quite remarkable. But you see, the Germans had, apart from Hannah Reich, this is the interesting thing, they had no great-name test pilots. They moved their people around. I think this was one of the weaknesses of their system. Um, Maybe they killed a lot of them, I'm not sure, but they uh, we had what one might call named test pilots in this country that were known to The industry known to the public. This was not the case in Germany at all um, When one met the Arado test pilot, you, I mean one had never heard of him until he was captured um, One never heard of the Messerschmitt test pilot even once the um, of course uh, vendor was the chief test pilot when the famous um, world speed record was made on the 109 mm. he stayed with them for a while but he did i think three flights of the 262 and then that he retired uh, but following him we never heard of the, who the chief test pilot was for um, messerschmitt and often it was just a squadron commander plucked out of the luftwaffe and um, thrown into the, the game, and this I think partly accounts for the comment I made earlier that they didn't seem to be pursuing any transonic testing. I don't think that anybody would have experienced the experience pursuit. They had no trained test pilots. They had a place at Rechlin, of course, which was supposed to be an equivalent to Farnborough, but it was a, again, it was not really comparable at all. So that was, I think this is one of their problem areas. They had a lot of development troubles on their prototypes, a lot of crashes on their prototypes. Once more, I think partially, partially because they had no real skilled pilots. They didn't have a test pilot school, well, neither did we in this country, till about 1944 when it was set up, but um, it's paid big dividends since. Now, the seat of the pants flying is will get you so far, but you really have to train a pilot to, um, well not so much, it's not only training, it's detecting whether he's the right material to persevere with. And it's cultivating him. That's right, but there's a little point in persevering with a person who obviously hasn't got an analytical mind, uh, or has some shortcoming which will, make him just not the right material for the game. Um, I'm a great believer that the really good test pilots are born this way and their qualities are brought out by that training, they're not imbued in them by that training. Um, So it's a question of selection and many of these people that I know were in fact came from backgrounds which really Gave no hint that they weren't going to be good test pilots at all. Um, you take a, a chap like um, Bill Humble of Hawkers. The Bill was the son of a fairly wealthy coal owner, coal mine owner, as I recollected, up in Yorkshire, and he did a lot of private flying and that type of thing. Alec Henshaw, very civil of that But they had that quality about them. They made it obvious that they were a bit above the average. Um, in the all-runner pilots. Somebody spotted that, and they were given the training, and they turned out to be crackerjacks. This is how it goes.
0: It was interesting. That's I was talking to Philip Lucas a couple of weeks back, and um, he was telling me how he got Rowley Beaumont on the start, you know, purely as a sort of production That's right. uh, test pilot to help him out. Yes. And the qualities came out uh, yes, then. Um, then he got captured towards the end of the war. Well, yes,
1: <laughs> because Beaumont really arrived rather late in the, in yeah. the scene. Uh, he. The first I really recollect of Beeman coming into the business was really well post-war, when they got into the jet era. But uh well, he did a great job in the um, Canberra and on the um, TSR-2. But the, if I, if you asked me, who the best one I've seen or the most gifted one I've seen is. I think the Saunders Roe. Jeff Tyson. Jeff Tyson. I think he's the most gifted, purely gifted aviator I've seen, in the sense that he had that touch. It's like watching Borg play tennis, he's just got that touch, which is the touch of the master about him. I had tremendous respect for Tyson. Now, you see, he was. Picked up into test flying in the same way. He was in the album Cobham Air Circus, and um, it was obvious from the stunts he got up to there that he was well, almost a unique sort of yeah. aviator, and um, he came into the game that way. Yeah. Now, I, I am um, not sure that. When you set up a thing like the Empire Test the School, this is a very interesting sort of situation where you have an intake that's picked up from the um, services. I presume they do their own selection. They pres- then go through a selection process in, in the school. Well, before they go to the school itself, they then go through the school. And they don't. They've produced good pilots, there's no question about that. But somehow they don't seem to have produced the personalities. Uh, maybe it's not nothing to do with school. Maybe it's just that the test flying game is different so much. It's mm-hmm. it's not so qualitative as it used to be. That's probably the, the answer. It's more quantitative now. You, you're up with a load of... Um, ironmongery which is all doing the work recording everything for you the qualitative assessment i think probably counts less than the quantitative data which is being picked up during the flight
0: you you were talking earlier on about the immense amount of sort of um, manual mathematics that had to be gone through in the old days now you've got computers but you're no quicker in getting an aircraft into service in fact you're a lot slower (laughs) I mean, I know know the avionics come into it here. That is true.
1: I think the avionics, I think the, um, you're in regions of advanced technology too now, which are much more difficult. I mean, we're we're flying at heights, which um, one never dreamt of 20 years ago. We're flying at speeds, which are... Taking us into the thermal barrier now, and that in itself is a problem. I think the stresses on the human body are so much higher that this is another reason that people are possibly going a bit more cautiously. One of the astonishing things to me is the growth of the science of ergonomics, which has come up now, where they study all the aspects of human frailty, if you like, involved in flying an air. But the RAF Institute of Aviation, MEDS, really is playing quite a powerful part now has, in the matter of design and operational techniques. And um, this is virtually a new science that's come into the game. So, while as I would agree with you that um, things haven't changed. What I would say is that you would have expected, if the old system had remained, they'd have taken much longer as the technology got more difficult and more advanced. The fact that they're staying in the same time scale as before in itself is a tribute to the, mm. Mm. the modern computer that managed yeah. to contain it this, this mm. way. Mm. Mm. Otherwise it may have taken three times so as long. Yeah. Yeah. But, of course, about the time. but. When you have an investment now, and each piece of machinery costs such an enormous amount of money, I think the flight testing is far more thorough. And they take more time in that sense. But the methods they have manage to keep this time within bounds. For example, I went down to see them testing the Sikorsky S-76 helicopter. And there they have uh, the pilot does a maneuver they get a readout, instantaneous readout, sitting down in the flight test centre, and they analyse it there and then, and tell him if he can go on with the next manoeuvre, and how far he can go. You see, now in my day, you've got a list of things to do. and you, you went through them, and then they decided if they would go on, how far they would go from that. If anything went wrong on that list, well, too bad. But there was no way of taking it so gradually, otherwise we'd have been there forever. And I think the risk element, to a large extent, has been eliminated mm. by this new method of um, read-back, instantaneous readback and analysis.
0: Because you don't hear of so many testifying final fatalities now. I mean, the tornado went in, it's gone in. Now that's the first British test that I've heard for a long, for a long time. time. Whereas in the 50s, that's right. every other month was that's one.
1: That's
0: right. yeah. My Absolutely. brother-in-law was one. In
1: um, You're quite right. Um, and I think this is the reason, because... And the and I think is another
0: thing. I mean, when
1: you think what a huge quantum jump that
0: was to bring a supersonic aircraft into passenger service, we haven't got a bomber. I mean, normally you try that out on, on, on uh, yes. military well, people yes. first, where, they, where the risk is acceptable. But uh, as a commercial flight with all the rigors of, of uh, yes. commercial certification
1: in every country,
0: including America...
1: See. Trump sure is an interesting chap because he spans the, what I call, well, almost the old school into the new school. Mm. Um, and as a Concorde test pilot, I mean he must find himself now very much being mastered by all this equipment. The bag tells him precisely what to do and where to go and whatnot. not. In the end, of course, everybody will always argue, and I think quite rightly, that if things really go wrong, no computer in the world can beat the human brain. Um, But that's not how they're trained these days. Uh, The training has, there's a completely different orientation in test pilot training now. There's so much more accent on understanding what I might call the almost the mathematical solutions to the problems, as well as just how to handle the situation. Of course, there there is qualitative assessment that has to be done, and they are trained for that, but it just doesn't play the same prominent part that it used to play. Um, I'm not arguing that either method is better, I think, we have accepted that there must be a change because of the change in the technology and the change in the cost. Of the machine has got to be dealt with in a very different way. There are less mistakes too made in basic design than there used to be before, because uh, the designers now there's no one designer like the big names of old. There's a team of designers working. A project leader or a project member. You've got multiple fail That's right. Yeah. And you don't hear so and so as the the Hawker designer or so and so as the uh, De Havilland designer like they used to be in the old days. There was one man, the chief designer. Fossard, of course. Is a bit of a personality. Isn't he? Oh yes, yes. He's been. He was very much involved in the Harriot, you See, but. The Harrier was still there in Cam's Day. And uh, there's the Hawk since, but the Hawk's more of a team effort, I think, than, than I, there are there are always, of course, key personalities involved, but I'm saying that they don't have seem to have the same power focused into them within the firm like they used to have. I and mean, everybody knew Petter was the chief designer of general Elect. Everybody knew Bishop was the chief designer of De Havilland's. Sidney Camp and yeah. Mitchell originally, and then Smith and um, Supermarines. They, they were big names in the game. Yeah. It's it's like the same thing has happened up to a point in Hollywood. Star roles.
0: Star roles? No, you get star directors, now. Well. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I don't quite know. Uh, the analogy may not be quite correct because. Uh, in, in in film terms, I suppose the accent's move from the pilot to the to the designer. But um, no, that's true. And then not everyone in the street knows the principle. I mean,
1: yeah, the, the ninety-nine villain.
0: people out, out of a hundred out there doesn't know who directed Star Wars or Close Encounters mm-hmm. or uh,
1: yes. The Godfather
0: or yes. any of those which most of them don't know who's in the pilot. But
1: this is it. You <laughs> see, there, there are no stars like the old Clark Gables mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Gene Hacklors mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Navy has always had two basic crosses to bear. One is that the senior officers in the Royal Navy have never fully accepted aviation as being an inherent necessity in any Navy. They may regard it as a useful weapon to have around, but they are not prepared to say that anybody who becomes a professional in this specific area is good enough to be a career officer in the Royal Navy. If you want to examine some basis for my saying this, if you look through the records of naval staff, I mean the personalities in the naval staff for many years, from 1930s right through, you rarely find anybody with wings on your sleeve on the naval staff at all. But they did begin to get them in there recently, it was too late. they only First Sea Lord we ever had wearing wings was Caspar John, and he, great man as he was, arrived there because the Sea Lord immediately ahead of him died of a heart attack after it being only months in the chair. So it was in some ways providence that guided Caspar into the, the chair. Thank God it did because he looked like putting the naval air um, right back up into the top league again, and it, we were all set fair to get into the top league with this wonderful new carrier, the CVA01, which was coming into, which would have come into service, and all the design work and uh, planning was done under the edges of Kaspar Then, just as he retired from the Navy, we had a change of government, and the whole thing collapsed. This is a way that politics plays such an important part in it. But, getting back to why, as I say, that's the first big cross the Navy's had to bear. The non-acceptance of a professional body of men who have a full career to enjoy in the Navy if they're associated with aviation. The other thing is there has always been, although it's often smoothed over, the fact is that it has always been a professional jealousy between the fleet air arm and the Air Force. The Air Force took over the Fleet Air Arm at one stage. Um, They ran the Navy's Naval Aviation in the 30s. They gave it up very reluctantly. They hankered after it ever since. They regard themselves like a certain amount of um, positive argument that they should control everything that flies. This is rather the Goering attitude to them in this situation. It was the same in Germany, the Luftwaffe. And as a result, um, they have never been very helpful to helping the Navy to keep its aviation head above water. Recently, of course, you'll see we've gone the full turn of the wheel. We look like getting what might be called mini carriers back under the disguise with the name of through-deck cruisers now. But many of the aircraft on them are going to be, the fixed wing aircraft, are going to be flown by people in light blue. Really? Oh, yes. And uh, indeed the Buccaneers and the Phantoms had a number of uh, crews recently and as uh, yes, recently as the Ark Royal, which were light blue. So there's still this tendency to revert back. If you look at it, it's not, it goes across the board. It also permeates into the army. The the RAF's relationship with the army up to a point is the same because the army got into the light spotting aircraft. Nobody was too interested in that. They were rather regarded as a sort of small flying club in that sense. But then they became serious users of helicopters. And sure enough, the RAF managed to persuade powers at be, that there should be a weight limit imposed on the kind of helicopter the army should operate. So anything above a given weight is in the RF's field. Like so the that, That's correct. So the army are restricted to the lightweight helicopters. Now I can't believe that this is the, the best solution. Um, I've heard the arguments, pro and con, but possibly what worries the RAF is there was at one time a strong body that thought there should be no RAF at all. There should only be an army with its own air wing and a navy with its own naval wing. And uh, this is of course reverting back to the situation that existed in the United States before the last war. Uh, I am not a supporter of that. I, d- I don't go as far as that for any matter of means. But I think there is room for a bit more give and take between the three services. And I, I would like to see um, more cooperation at high level. At working level, there is all the cooperation in the world. All the cooperation in the world. There is no problem at all when it gets down to squadron level. It's when you get up into the echelons of Whitehall that the problems start. And it was ever thus, I suppose it always will be. If you look throughout history, I mean, this isn't a new phenomenon at all. Um, There's professional jealousy in every walk of life. In the services, it is possibly particularly strong because it's almost motivated by a fight for survival. When you have a budget, a defence budget, which has got to be sliced up, this really fosters professional jealousy when they're all fighting for a slice of the cake. Um,
0: There's professional jealousy, though, um, vis-à-vis military aviation, vis-à-vis civil aviation. I mean, Belper's attitude That's... towards all service pilots coming in, for instance. And this rigid seniority system they've got.
1: That's... you're absolutely right. Um,
0: yes. Quite incredible that however good a pilot you are, your status is regarded with how many hours you've flown. Yeah. In the right-hand seat or left-hand seat or wherever.
1: Yes. You're quite right. This is very, very, very sad in many ways. Because there's going to be a big change in civil aviation shortly, after all, when you realise that the majority of the senior captains now are all hex wartime people, you've got a huge bulge in that area of these people, and very shortly they're all going to be coming up to retirement age, and you'll be, they'll, be re- they'll be replaced by people who've gained all their experience from graduating from a... S- school like Hamble Mm -hmm. through into the um, right-hand seat then into the left-hand seat and that is the total of their experience Um, of course excellent but it's confined to a very narrow narrow field I suppose some airline captains go through life having flown not basically more than 10 to 15 types of aircraft wouldn't know, but I suppose it's quite possible.
0: I was hearing on, on the Grapevine the other day that British Airways are experiencing a sixty percent failure rate on comfortable yes. captain shortage. Yes. Of course it's that's that is probably true. It's
1: certainly that it, that is the type of rate that is certainly true in the services. Yeah, yeah. They're highly selective, I think, in both and they can afford to be because The intake is so immense. We run, for example, here in this office, we run a a government industry sponsored scheme for helicopter pilots, training scheme. We have an intake of 24 a year. And last year, for these 24 places, we had three and a half thousand applications. And in the course of the year between the last course running and the new advertisement, We've had eight thousand inquiries. So kids are there's no shortage of youngsters that want to get into aviation. In fact, we're swamped with them. So under those circumstances they can afford to be very, very choosy in their training, I think. And this is what happens. And you've got to be choosy. After all, if you're sitting behind a piece of equipment that's costing X million pounds. You can't afford to be anything but choosy about the fellow who's flying it. I do a lot of flying over the North Sea, too. I can't afford to be choosy.
0: Just there's one more thing I want to raise with you, on, on uh, again, in, on, on naval, naval aviation, and that is is there a reason why all these new um, systems in carrier design seem to, seem to have come? From the Royal Navy, you know, going back to the angled deck, the steam catapult, going right up now to the ski jump takeoff platform. Um, I mean, is there a sort of the engineering branch of the Navy blessed with engineers that
1: are then given their head or what? No, I think in a, a system like ours, the British system, there has always been more freedom of action allowed to the individual. If you look at the days in Farnborough, war years, it was always a matter of an astonishment to me that you had a young boffin come in, pretty fresh from university, <coughs> comes into Farnborough, he's given quite a large slice of money to get on with some project, and he's virtually given complete control one I can recollect was fairly young Boffin, who is now a very distinguished Boffin, who put a complete set of power controls on the Lancaster. Now, for all practical purposes, this was a redesign of the total control system. And he had to go at it step-by-step, helens, rudder and elevator, and not just the whole thing on and, you know, one bang, each flight testing it. But he conducted that, virtually understand. Friendly eye kept on him, but um, there were so many other projects going on. That the chap who's supervising it couldn't really delve too deep into it. And this is the way I believe that we've progressed. These people, when they have this freedom of action, they the initiative is there, and they blossom under this. Up to a point, it's the same in the navy. Um, we've in carrier aviation and the submarine world is much the same and there is the same flexibility of thought in uh, in them. Now I've operated with the um, US Navy, very efficient Navy, but it's such an immense machine, immense machine that it has to be more carefully regimented. Somebody was just making a comparison the other day between the Civil Aviation authority over here and the FAA in America. And you realize, here you have a small group of people, there they are, they're all in that building for all practical purposes they are worth in this division. You go to the FAA in America, there's a group at headquarters and then there's a regional thing, a regional headquarters all over these, in each of these states. It's a huge machine. And the bigger you are, the more inflexible you become. And I think this is the real answer that is. Uh, I'm sure the Americans, if they had the same freedom of action, would have the same... would be as prolific in in ideas. At the level we're talking about. We're not talking at the top scientific level. We're talking about the working level.
0: And yet they're prolific in ideas in a different way. I mean, the, the Apollo... Yes, we're operate. talking, now you're on the top level, yes, yeah, yeah. once you get up to the top but level, they on are. On the ordinary administration, I mean, for instance, I don't know, is he still around, D.P. Davis, or is he Yes, he's now? still over there. How he sorted out the 707's problems.
1: Right.
0: Um, the Americans couldn't do it, I mean, I don't know if that's that delightful story is true, about ground stalling a 707, and they went galloping off down, they sort of flattered Edwards and disappeared over the horizon, and came back about ten minutes later saying, you're right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes but you see he's lifting the nose too high yes yes yeah. why You see, he? he's a, a chap who's um, been given a lot of freedom of action really over there oh
0: he's a hero of mine I mean handling
1: the big jets is my side reading so yes it's a, so a first class book yeah. isn't it yeah. and um, it's sold extremely well
0: mm.
1: and and uh, he's the sort of fellow that i think typifies um, well again he's almost like trump Shaw, he spans the two the two years really doesn't he and uh he's specialized in the big stuff of course to his to his every advantage yeah yeah one of the things you know that we didn't talk about i was just reading something i had written the other day for a magazine i haven't sent it though i haven't they haven't published it yet because they're looking into. It. The Miles Supersonic Project. Remember the Miles M fifty two.
0: I want to dig into that in the Public Records Office, if they've got anything there, because that's public knowledge. Thirty
1: years. Um, it's just about. Well, the